Well, in some way, it's kind of uh, difficult to imagine that we're already in the Christmas season, first uh, Sunday here in, uh, in uh, December, and so many uh, signs that point to the fact that we're getting ready to celebrate a wonderful Christmas season. Thank you for those who showed up, I think, on Sunday night, the 20th, and helped decorate. I uh, helped to add to the beauty of this season and to our sanctuary. You also notice the uh, it's part of the set up here for uh, Two from Galilee, and that will be uh, performing two two segments, two two, per, two performances uh, next Sunday evening. So we encourage you to be here and bring somebody to come uh, with you and celebrate uh, in that way. So many different things that we'll be doing, uh, like the Allison has already talked about tonight. The children of the world in concert. Uh, our family gathering uh, together as a church family on the 14th. Uh, it's just wonderful times, all leading up to the celebration of Christmas and my favorite night of all the years, Christmas Eve. On December 24th, again, two services at 5 and at 7. So uh, we're going to be celebrating all through this season. And once again, it's that incredible opportunity for us uh, to just kind of step back and look at this marvelous story uh, that God has given to us in his word about the birth of Jesus Christ, uh, our Savior. And we celebrate that once again and the gift of God's redeeming love in this Jesus Christ. Uh, there are many different emotions that, uh, that go through this wonderful Christmas season. Uh, many different reasons that we do some of the traditions that we do. Uh, some people celebrate this as a, as a secular holiday. Some celebrate it as the most significant and meaningful time uh, in their life with the birth of a Savior. I'm really uh, excited and feel very good about the fact that um, some information out of Pew Research um, maybe shed some light on the fact that maybe there's some, um, maybe there's a deepening spiritual uh, awareness and growing in the life of our nation. According to Pew Research recent uh, study, they have discovered that nine to ten Americans, nine out of ten Americans, um, and nearly all Christians, I don't know why that's not all, but nearly all, say that they celebrate Christmas. Okay, that's great. Now, surprisingly, they say, a vast majority, 81% even of non-Christians in the United States celebrate Christmas. And that includes a wide variety of people. Now, here's the, here's the encouraging part to some extent. I wish it were more than this, but here's, here's some encouragement in this. Americans largely believe that all the elements of the traditional Christmas story reflect actual historical events. Well, they do. But to what extent? More than 7 in 10 say that they believe Jesus was born of a virgin. should be more than that. 81% believe he was laid in a manger. Uh, about the same number of people believe that wise men were guided by a star and they brought Jesus the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And 75% of Americans believe that an angel of the Lord appeared to shepherds to announce the birth of Jesus. Now, all of those are components of the wonderful Christmas story that we have in which God announces to us the gift of his redeeming love in Jesus Christ. Everything about Christmas should focus upon the birth of Jesus uh, and the fact that he was pre-incarnate, he existed before he was born. And the fact that we celebrate the fact that he came through that mysterious gift and wonder of God through the, through the incarnation where God became flesh and God became a human being in the form of Jesus Christ. And that Christ was indeed born of a virgin. And that there was quite a stir going on in the time in which Jesus was born. And that there were shepherds who came to see this great thing that had come about. And that angels announced that birth of Jesus Christ. And then at some point in time, yes, the wise men did come. And they brought gifts to Jesus of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You might think, well, that's a lot to do about the birth of a child, isn't it? 
We celebrate the birth of children, and we do it in different ways. But the birth of this child that we celebrate during this wonderful Christmas season is the child of Christmas. So what do we understand? What do we need to understand about the significance of the birth of Jesus uh, and, and the birth of this Christ child and this child of Christmas? Uh, I wasn't here last week. We were spending some vacation time during the Thanksgiving holidays. Ryan, our minister of students, preached for you, and he preached out of Isaiah 11. I hope you were here to hear that and to encourage him in that. And it's the beginning of our Advent season, and he talked about uh, that's out of the stump of Jesse would come the leader. And that is the, to remind us that Christ came out of the lineage of David, whose father was Jesse, and all the way he traced through that. Well, I want us to go back a little bit farther than that. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 9. And I want us to look at some verses that hopefully are familiar to us and then have an understanding about how this, these verses describe this child of Christmas so that we can understand the significance of celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Isaiah writes and, and says these words about the coming of this Christ child. He says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy, they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Was in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. That's an insert there about the battle at Midian and, and uh, of Gideon's uh, wonderful victory that was wrought during that time. And I think Isaiah is putting that in there to remind the people that there will be a time coming when the ultimate victory will come. And we find that in the birth of this child, beginning in verse 6. For he says, to us a child is born. Then he emphasizes it again by saying, to us a son is given. He's referring to two remarkable things about the fact a child is born. But it's a son who is given to us. And then notice the things that come about because of the birth of this child. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, what, is, what, what does Isaiah tell us about this child of Christmas that gives us reason to celebrate? We need to understand as we look at these descriptions here about this Christ child and what he says to us that the significance of this child of Christmas is, that he was talking about not only what would happen then, but what would happen in the future. And even for us today, as we celebrate, we do so with a sense of anticipation that some of these things about this Christ child have not yet been fulfilled. But God is faithful to his word. He had promised the Messiah, and the Messiah came as Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And he promises us these things, that he would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And those are things that we can claim both now and look into the future whenever God decides to bring about the culmination of his history. So what does Isaiah say to us about this child of Christmas? There are several things I think that he points out. First of all, he is the one who brings light into darkness. Isaiah says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned. 
When you read through your Bible, hopefully you have picked up on the fact that there is always this play on darkness and light. And that darkness refers to the realm of sin. And everything that relates to sin is dark and darkness. But light refers to God and the kingdom of God. And it talks about that which represents righteousness and holiness. In fact, there would be a time to come fairly quickly in his ministry that Jesus as an adult would say, I am the light of the world. And that's a wonderful part of Christmas that we celebrate. The wonderful use of lights and candles and all that we have is to remind us that Jesus is the light of the world. I don't know whether this change, when we make the time change every year, whether that affects you adversely or not. You know, I kind of like the, the long sunlit days of summer. You know, you can do a lot of things after, you, after work hours are over. That working man or woman could really work themselves to death if they choose to work until the sun finally goes down about 10 o'clock at night. There's also some wonderful things you can do. You know, even after you get off work, you can get in, maybe even if you play fast enough, 18 holes of golf. Or you can go fishing. Or you got a lot of time to work in the yard. And it's interesting when that time change comes and it gets dark, for some reason to me, I don't know what it does you this way or not, but when it's like 6 o'clock in the afternoon and it's pitch dark, to me it feels like it's about midnight. Does it feel to you that way like that? You know, and, and there, there was a, there's actually a syndrome for that, SAD, S-A-D, Seasonally Affected Disorder. And some people get terribly depressed when that time change takes place because of the, of the lack of light and more darkness that takes place. I, I'm fascinated when I watch on television, uh, not regular television, but some of these, all these reality shows, so many of them are up there in Alaska, and that they brave those elements and still it's fairly rustic living up there. But then I wonder, how do they survive all that amount of time when they don't have the sun but just a short period of time? Some of you have lived there uh, in, in the Army, and, and you probably have experienced some of that. I, I, I remember reading a couple of years ago about the fact uh, an article was printed that said the darkest city in the world is not somewhere above the Arctic Circle, but it's in Rattenburg, Austria. And this little village has been losing population for decades, and the reason for it is because it's located in the shadow of Mount Rat. And because it's situated in the shadow of this mountain, the city of Rattenburg does not see any sun from November through February. Can you imagine that? November, December, January, and February, four months you would go without seeing any sun. No wonder people are leaving that place. But some scientists have come up with a marvelous solution to that. They spent almost $3 million to install some kind of heliostatic mirrors on top of Mount Rat to reflect the light of the sun into that city. And now, uh, even during those winter months when they used to not have light, there is light in Rattenburg. And people not only are staying, others are moving back. And not only that, but reports indicate that there's a tremendous attitude, a change in attitude in the people who live there because of light. Well, the same thing is true for us. The darkness into which Jesus came was the darkness of sin and evil. And Jesus came as the light of the world who would shed the light of God's glory upon the darkness of sin and to bring us out of the disorder of darkness that would encompass us and to bring us into light. He is the one who does that. Isaiah also says that this child of Christmas is the one who rules the world. Isaiah says, and the government will be upon his shoulders. You know, unless you've been in the cave for the last several weeks or so, uh, you know that we have a, a new president-elect, and all kinds of things are taking place and change in, in uh, the, the, the new uh, re regime of government that will be coming 
uh, into our nation. Uh, and we've always had our own form of government here, as long as since we became a free nation. And sometimes we think that that's what rules and governs our, our, our country. And we have a very, very intricate system from, from county and city to state to nation. You know, it's an intricate system of government. Now, I think sometimes we look too much to the government to answer some of the questions that we have. Well, we go back and we look at this statement that Isaiah makes. And the government will be upon his shoulders. That simply means that Jesus Christ is sovereign. And he is in charge of everything in this world. That means that he is the king. And it's interesting, isn't it? Then that when Christ was born, that the wise men came and asked the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You remember also that was not only asked at the beginning of his life, but at the end of his life? That there was asked that, that Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? And then there was a sign that was put over him, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus said, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And the reality of that is that Jesus rules over a spiritual kingdom now as the sovereign God. But one day, one day yet to come, Jesus Christ will indeed be the ruling government on this land. He will establish a kingdom that will be his, and that he will rule in that complete. Every decision that we make should be made as the fact that we acknowledge that Christ is the sovereign God and rules over all the affairs of mankind. We need to remember that he is the one who rules the world. Ultimately, one day great, something is going to happen. And that is that when his kingdom comes on earth, then every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's the light of the world. He rules the world. Isaiah also says that he is the one who mediates between God and us. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. When we tend to think about Christ being a counselor, we think of someone who has a compassionate and sympathetic heart and is empathetic to listen to us and our concerns and our needs and to share with us and sometimes help us deal, like counselors that we might go to today, help us deal with some tough issues in life and maybe get another perspective about how to deal with some of these issues, whether it's a a personal issue, whether it's family issues, whether there's some kind of conflict going on in your life, whatever it might be. And that's true that he does act in that role because the scriptures tell us that we can cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. But there's another role, I think, that Isaiah wants us to understand about Jesus. He's not just a counselor who listens to our concerns and and does so with a sympathetic ear. But he is someone that we use as an advocate on our behalf. Like maybe if you've ever had to have a, a court case and you need an attorney to come and argue for your point. He is someone who does that. He is the mediator between you and the other uh, other, uh, party in that affair and between you and the government, between you and the ruling judge. And that's what Isaiah is wanting us to see. That's what Jesus does. He is our advocate and he is our advocate as we relate to God and he qualifies us because he's all God. He's 100% God and 100% man. Not 50-50 but 100% each. And because he is the only one who could reach into heaven and take the hand of God, 
and reach down into earth and take the hand of humanity and bring these two together. He is that mediator between God and us. In fact, Paul would write to 1 Timothy and say, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So if you want to relate to God and you want to solve the issue of the sin problem in your life, then come to Jesus. He is the wonderful counselor. Not only that, Isaiah says, but he is the one who is God in the flesh. He will be called mighty God. See, in the the Bible there are several times used the the reference of El Shaddai, that God is referred to as God Almighty. And the Bible tells us here that Jesus is the one who will be called the mighty God, and that's because all the deity of God dwelled in Jesus Christ as he came and still does. The reality of the Christmas season is that God put on human flesh and came to earth to be with us, as, as Allison talked about, Emmanuel, to be with us. Not just as Savior and Redeemer, but to be with us in every experience of life. To celebrate with us, to share with us. He is the one who is God in the flesh. It's the mystery of the incarnation. That God came to us in human flesh. We can't understand it. It's a miracle. How did the Holy Spirit come into Mary in such a way that she would become pregnant with the the Son of God, God in the flesh? We don't know, but God did. John puts it this way in John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then Isaiah goes on to say that Jesus also is the one who welcomes us into His family. He will be called everlasting Father. The word father relates to a family name, doesn't it? And that's an interesting thing, a concept in the Bible. In our Bible, this is the only religious literature we find where we are taught we can have a personal relationship like a child to a father in our Christian faith. And that that is greater than any other teaching in any other religious literature. No other religious literature of any other form of religion teaches that. Now, for some people, to understand that we can relate to God as a father who relates to his children is not necessarily a pleasant thing. You know, because some of us have different concepts about a father, especially if we had a father who was an absent father, if we had an abusive father, if we had one who was a non-supportive father, who was one who could never be pleased, you know, those are, those are some unpleasant things that sometimes fathers are. But the reality of the coming of Jesus Christ reminds us as the everlasting Father that in Him, in God, we find the perfect Father. He will never disappoint us. He will never be ashamed of us. He will always support us and encourage us. And then Isaiah says that this child of Christmas is the one who brings peace to troubled hearts. He will be called Prince of Peace. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is the Prince of Peace? What's the meaning of that message that the angels first announced, peace on earth, goodwill towards men? Does it mean that somehow we have lost that message and the meaning of that because we don't live at peace now? There's conflict every day that rages. There's some major court cases going on right now to try to settle some issues about conflict and the lack of peace 
And we know that right now there are hot spots around the world where people are fighting because there's not peace there. Has something happened that we've missed that? Well, this is what we need to understand, what, what Isaiah is talking about. That God's concern wasn't necessarily about bringing peace between two people or between nations, even though that does concern him. But his primary concern as the Prince of Peace is to bring peace to troubled hearts and to bring about peace and reconciliation between sinful human beings and a holy and perfect God. And that's what the child of Christmas came to do. That's what Christmas is all about. It's celebrating the fact that in God, Jesus Christ comes to us and brings us the peace from God that only Christ can bring to us. And it's that peace that God is most concerned about that brings about reconciliation between us and God. So what do we do about this relationship? What do we do about this child of Christmas? Uh, we can talk about the fact that he's uh, one of the gifts of Christmas now. He's the ultimate gift of Christmas. He's the reason that we give gifts and share gifts. But I want to share two insights with you about, about that. Uh, in, the, in the book entitled Chicken Soup for the Soul, Christmas Magic, uh, there's a story about Kayla Ryan, who was out shopping with a three-year-old daughter. And she'd done a lot of Christmas shopping, but she saw one little thing else that she wanted for her daughter. And having a three-year-old daughter with her, it's kind of difficult to buy it, but she did. And she had it stuffed up under some other things. But observant three-year-old daughter uh, uh, saw that, little Avery, and she asked about it, inquired about it. She said, I want it. I want that. What is that? What is that? And finally, her mother had to say, okay, it's something I saw for you I want you to have, and I didn't want you to see it. And the little daughter said, Avery said, Mom, you know, I got lots of presents already under the tree. I don't really need that for Christmas. And just as a, a, before this mother's heart melted to think, you know what, my child's finally got this message about Christmas and the ultimate thing about giving. That she's saying she doesn't need this because she's got all the other gifts under the tree. Her little daughter says, I've got all those other gifts under the tree. I want this one now. Uh, today you might be sitting here thinking, Jesus is the child of Christmas and all the things that he brings. I want that now. And the reality is you can have that now. And I had this revelation too, a, a marvelous book by Timothy Keller. Uh, I'm reading about 12 different Christmas books, and this is, this is one of my favorites. Also, Max Locato has one out, Because of Bethlehem. I would encourage you to read that one as well. But Timothy Keller, in the book Hidden Christmas, says this. He says, there are some gifts by their very nature uh, that make you have to swallow your pride. And he talks about it this way. Suppose you're opening gifts from a friend at Christmas, and you open one, you tear the wrapping off one, uh, and it's a dieting book. And then you tear the wrapping off another gift. And it's a book entitled Overcoming Selfishness. And so you think uh, for a moment to yourself and you say, okay, I'm overweight and I'm obnoxious. What am I going to do about it? Well, to make a difference, you've got to sometimes swallow your pride. Well, 
The gift of Jesus comes to us as the perfect God for the peace of reconciliation. To rule in your life as the sovereign God. To be that perfect father in your life. And you can have all of that now. You just have to kind of swallow your pride and admit your need and confess your sins. And this child of Christmas is your gift. And if you've not done that and embraced him as your Savior, then today would be the day to do that. Because you can have this gift now. Fathers, we begin our celebration of this wonderful time of the birth of Jesus Christ your Son, our Savior. We celebrate the birth of this child and the gift of a son. And we do so because it brings to us hope. It brings to us the possibility of that relationship with you. It takes the concerns of our world every day off of our shoulders and puts it on you through Jesus Christ. Father, help us today to understand the significance of this child of Christmas as we celebrate his birth, let us claim that gift now. And we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.